0: Not microbial genetics is going to be similar to regular genetics but there will be some, some, some very specific differences. Uh, okay so first of all, definition of genetics and genome. Um, we've all taken biology 101 or something equivalent so you know basically what genetics is about. It's, it's about understanding how traits are inherited, passed on from one generation to the next. Okay now a genome, when we talk about that, we're talking about the complete set of genes uh, for an organism, okay? Uh, not just an individual. Okay, so the human genome is a set of genes that uh, has been determined uh, by, through research. Does everybody in here have all of those genes? Probably, unless you've had a mutation. Now, which variation of that gene you have? That's quite variable, for person to person, because the, just the genes are a genetic. A gene is the code that affects a particular protein or, uh, or structure. Um, there may be several variations of them. Most of which work just fine. Others may not work so well. Uh, so when we once when we say we know the human genome, what we know is the genes that a f- fairly small select number of people when that project was done. Okay. Then the next thing, of course, is figuring out, well, what do they do? Okay, so once you know the genes, you know the nucleotide sequence of those genes, then you have to figure out, okay, so so, uh, so what? What are they for? Uh, that's not always immediately obvious. And in fact, in many cases, it's unknown. Now, uh, DNA is, uh, for uh, our purposes, is the genetic material. Uh, it is the only genetic material you find in microbes, with the exception of viruses. We'll talk about those a little bit separately. Uh, they have some different arrangements uh, than, than the others, but for the most part, we're dealing with uh, DNA. Uh, DNA is made up of uh, nucleotides. Each of these is a nucleotide. There's adenine and thymine, and they're put in here like this because. In the molecule, they pair with each other: uh, adenine and uracil. Now, uracil is found only in RNA, but when we talk about protein synthesis, we will need to talk about RNA. Uh, Thymine in RNA, and then we have guanine and uh, uh, cytosine. And that's mislabeled there. One of those is actually uh, cytosine. Uh, this is actually cytosine right here. That's mislabeled on the slide. Okay, we know that they're arranged in a double helix with the bases paired in the middle. Um, And cytosine, always pairs with uh, guanine. I'm sorry, this is cytosine. Adenine pairs with thymine. These are attached to the sugar molecule, which is the other part of the nucleotide. In this case, it's the the sugar deoxyribose. And then there's a phosphate group (coughs) that attaches one deoxyribose to the next deoxyribose and that's what holds the the whole thing together as far as any uh, strength in the bonds and then you have the hydrogen bonding holding the bases together in the middle so if you were thinking of like a spiral staircase the the edges of it the, the structure of it is the phosphate sugar phosphate sugar backbone on either side and then the steps that you step on would be going across in the middle. And then of course it twists as you go up. Now one of the interesting things, we're not going to get into detail in this class, but I want to just point out because it will come up later. If you look at this little bit of double helix here, you'll notice there's some little white numbers on here. This is a chemistry thing. They they number the carbon atoms in the sugar, Deoxyribose, and rivals for that matter are five carbon sugars unlike glucose which was a six carbon sugar okay right? these are five carbon sugars they're numbered in this order one two three four and then five is sticking off to the side but actually they're called one prime two prime three prime four prime five prime now what i want to point out is phosphate is attached here to the five prime one over here on the other side If I look up here at this one, you'll notice these are upside down compared to these. Notice that a little O, the oxygen, is pointed upwards here. Over here, it's pointed downwards. And so on this end up here, this is 1 prime, 2 prime, 3 prime, 4 prime, 5 prime, just like it's labeled down here. And so it's the 3 prime carbon that's accessible on this end. On this one, it's the 5 prime carbon. Now, this is only important to us because when we look at replication of DNA, the enzyme that does that can only recognize one end, it cannot recognize both of them, and so it becomes an issue for the enzyme that makes new DNA. Uh, <clears throat> for most of what we're going to be talking about, it's not that important, okay, that you really be able to draw that out or anything like that, I'm not going to ask you to draw this. Okay? I'll go. Uh, but the point is, if you, were to, if you were, we were to shrink you down small enough that you could climb around on those atoms in there, you could tell that of the two strands that the, the end of one strand would look different than the end of the other strand. Okay? One would have a five prime carbon on the end, the other would have a three prime carbon on the end. Okay? It would be different. Now, prokaryotic genomes. Uh, prokaryotic uh, chromosomes are mostly DNA. Proteins and RNA are involved in, uh, in various things that they do, like replication, transcription, translation. Um, one of the, the things that is important out of this is that having only one chromosome means that they are haploid. Okay? That means any kind of a change to a gene will show up in the organism because there is not a compensating normal gene on the other chromosome. okay, so haploid organisms have to deal with that uh, that any kind of uh, change that's made immediately shows up in their in their phenotype and what they look like. Uh, <clears throat> okay, so prokaryotic cells are haploid. they have only one chromosome, typically, but not always, but typically it is a circular chromosome. In other words, it, it, what the, the ends are attached. so there's a circular Piece of DNA. Found in the nuclei. Okay, and So here's a diagram here, a picture. This is the nucleoid area. Uh, you see that it has a different appearance in the stain that's been done here than the rest of the cell. Now down here, this cell has been treated in a way that its the cell membrane, its cell wall has been removed and the DNA has been spilled out of the cell and all of this stuff that you see here all the way around that's all DNA from that single cell Now, normally it's all wrapped up pretty tightly in that nucleoid but you, there's a lot of DNA in there okay, all for all the different genes that are, that are present okay, our DNA uh, is quite large really we have 46 chromosomes, and if you unravel them completely and, uh, and line them end to end, they're fairly long. They're about three feet, three feet long, and that's all crammed into every single cell in your body. Into the nucleus. So, the chemistry of how they're wrapped up is very important because it has a lot to do with which genes are available to be used and which ones are, are hidden and not available. Now, besides the main chromosome, many prokaryotic organisms have an additional, some number, maybe one, it may be three, four, five, of small circular pieces of DNA called plasmids. Uh, These typically contain maybe eight, nine, ten genes, that's all, they're fairly small. These are the parts that are easily transferred from one cell to another during conjugation. Okay? And in fact, most conjugation is for the transfer of plasmids, not the main chromosome. Now, there are various types of uh, plasmids. and They do confer some advantages on the cells. For instance, fertility factors. Um, when we talk about conjugation, which we're gonna talk about later, we're gonna see that one cell transfers a plasmid to another cell. It can do this because on that plasmid is a fertility factor that allows it to form the pelus and actually do that. Okay, Without that fertility factor on that plasmid, they wouldn't be able to, to, to do that. Uh, there are some that have resistance factors. Many of the antibiotic resistance genes are found on plasmids, which means that they're easily transferred from one cell to another. And that's part of the problem with antibiotic resistance.
1: And then there are some other.
0: There are virulence plasmids. There are some bacteria that, if you get an infection from them, they're not all that much of an infection. But if you add a particular plasmid that carries virulence gene, a virulence gene on it, the infection becomes much more, much worse. Okay, and so th- that is an issue with some of the. Uh, so plasmids. Uh, these uh, they replicate completely <clears throat> independently of the main chromosome. So they have their own little replication site. Uh, they're absolutely not needed for normal, normal metabolism growth, housekeeping, you know, all the things the bacteria normally needs to do. They're not needed for that. They confer some kind of an advantage or some kind of additional characteristic that uh, then is easily transferred. And this is just uh, a look here. Um, This is the this is a drawing main chromosome. Here's a plasmid. Here's another uh, electron micrographs of a plasmid. See, they're quite small in comparison to the whole chromosome, which you see over here. Plasmids are really quite small, very short. Now, eukaryotic cells, since we do have some eukaryotic microbes, are quite different. First of all, the chromosomes are in it. Typically, there are multiple chromosomes and they are linear, very different. Some of the microbes that are eukaryotic are diploid, some are haploid. It's going to depend on the particular organism. Not all eukaryotic cells are, are diploid. Uh, most fungi are haploid, the growing portion of most fungi is haploid. Uh, there are. Uh, some of the, uh, the proteins are also haploid. Don't generally find that in plants or animals. That's pretty rare in plants and animals. Okay. Now, here's the, the, uh, the diagram of how DNA is condensed down. Remember when you talked about mitosis, you could see when it mitosis began, you couldn't see the chromosomes, they're all unraveled. And then, as mitosis went on, the chromosomes condensed, become visible. And here's part of how that's happening. It's a it's a packing problem. Uh, the DNA is wrapped around histone molecules, and then as it condenses, these be pack in tighter and tighter. And then they form these back and forth loop-like arrangements, like so. Uh, and then they get Aggressively tighter, and they form what we would call the typical chromosome that we see during cell division. And Eukaryotes and the only time you will ever see a chromosome that looks like that is during cell division. They never look like that any other time. And you can—one of the ways, a couple ways to tell. First of all, it's all condensed. Secondly, there are sister chromatids here. Those are two. Uh, those are essentially two DNA molecules that are. Genetically identical to each other, waiting to be separated during the process. Now, DNA outside of the nucleus, generally not common. We, we don't have plasmids, okay? Uh, but we do have DNA in mitochondria and chloroplasts. DNA and uh, both of those contain DNA that is their own. Uh, the, resembles the chromosomes of prokaryotes. Um, now, it doesn't make a lot of stuff, about five to ten percent of all of the materials that are needed for a chloroplast or a mitochondrion, but without them, you cannot make new ones. Okay? And this is uh, one of the arguments that these organelles were once free-living bacterial cells, because they have their own. Now, if the fungi and protozoa have plasmids, but animals, uh, animals do not. And then this is uh, just a little chart about uh, uh, for each of the groups, number of chromosomes, plasmids, what kind of nucleic acid. You'll notice it's always the same. It's always double-stranded DNA. Linear over here, circular here. Circular in the mitochondria and the chloroplasts. where it's found and so on one of the reasons the archaea are split from the bacteria they have histone proteins just like, just like we do these proteins here are called histone proteins they're unique to the nucleus they, they function uh, with the DNA archaeans have them also bacteria do not And this is one of the uh, one of the other reasons that Now, okay. So, DNA is the stores all of the genetic material for that organism. Now, you don't want to mess with the genetic material. Every time a cell divides, you have to make new DNA. If however many chromosomes you have, you have to produce a copy for the new cell every single time there's, there's cell division, which in us is going on by the millions every minute right right now while you're sitting here and in, in your skin cells, you know, the bottom layer of the, of the uh, epidermis, uh, all lining the, uh, your intestinal tract in your mouth and your bone marrow. Literally millions of new cells being produced every minute. Okay, in order to do that, we would like to be able to make identical copies without making a lot of mistakes. Because mistakes made in the DNA can become a problem. Okay? Right? So, uh, the key to this is in the structure of the molecules. Now, Watson and Crick, uh, they, uh, let me see, do I go, yeah, <clears throat>
1: okay.
0: but Watson and Crick came up with their double helix model, and regardless of who's data they may have stolen or not stolen, which is still controversial today, uh, and, and not entirely determined. Uh, it, but it's pretty clear that they used data that they did not develop themselves. Uh, that in itself is not bad. The question is, today, they have permission to use the data? And uh, Watson says that Francis or that, uh, that uh, you know, that Wilkins gave them permission to use them, and that's why they did it. Um, Basil Franklin said, no, nobody asked me, then I'm the one who made them. And it, will never, it, it doesn't matter. All except well, one of them are dead now, so it you know, becomes a non-issue at, at some point. Uh, but anyway, in their paper that they published that described the double helix, you know, that it was two strands wrapped around each other, they described the diameter of the strands. They defined how far you went along it before it made one complete turn. Uh, they had all of that data, and a lot of that came from the photographs that uh, Rosalind Franklin did. But they also knew from uh, Erwin Chargaff that adenines and thymines were always equal, and cytosines and guanines were usually equal, which led them to the pairing relationship in the middle. Uh, okay, so they published this paper. And almost as a footnote, it wasn't really a footnote, but at the end, in the very last paragraph, they said, it's kind of like, oh, by the way, we think we know how this is gonna copy itself. We think what'll happen is, since those are hydrogen bonds in the middle, which aren't really all that strong, although there's lots of them, it will simply unzip down the middle, and each half will be used as a template to make a new half, and you'll make identical copies. Semi-conservative replication. As it turned out, they were correct in that. They had not done anything to verify it. They just said, oh, just looking at the structure, we think this is a strong possibility. And it turned out that they were, in fact, correct. So replication is considered to be semi-conservative. What that means is that your original DNA splits, and each new DNA molecule is half old DNA and half So each is half old and each is half new. And this is semi-conservative. We have conserved half of the molecule in each new piece of DNA. And this is we use that as a, as a model for how we're to build the other side. So if my original piece had an adenine on it, I'm going to put a thymine across from it. And if I came to a cytosine, I'm going to put a guanine across from it. Just follow that template and you will make an identical. And that is basically what happens. It's a lot more complex than that, but it does in fact happen like that. Okay. So DNA uh, replication in a bacterium—remember, it's circular, it's not uh, linear—begins. Picture, yeah. This is kind of how it starts. There's usually an origin of replication on the chromosome, and then it proceeds in both directions from that location until, in fact, you have made two complete new DNA molecules. Now ours, of course, are different because they're not circular. Ours are linear, and they're going to go through this process here. Now, the first thing you have to do is you're going to have to unwind the helix in order to do this. If you just yank on it, you're going to get a big tangle. It's going to be a mess, okay? So it has to be unwound, and there's an enzyme function is to do that I've got a a couple of animations to look at that we'll talk about them. okay Um, and then you get this what's called the replication fork you have two two strands and then you have an enzyme that's going to catalyze the adding of the new bases it's called DNA polymerase and remember you talked about monomers and polymers back in one hundred and one. Okay, way back in, in ancient times. Uh, well, this is a, DNA is a polymer. DNA polymerase makes the big polymer molecule. Okay, so the name tells you exactly what the enzyme does. Now, it turns out, however, that there are some problems with this. The enzyme, this one here, can only recognize the three prime end of this and then we'll make copies in a five prime to three prime direction okay it looks at this as a one-way street going this direction well that's a problem for this one down here because remember this one has a different orientation and so it can't do that if it wants to follow this direction which is the only thing it knows how to do what it does is it comes down here it makes a short piece here back around makes another short piece We tie these together with a different enzyme back here makes another short piece and eventually you end up with a, rep- a replicating chromosome but it makes it for a much more complex process okay. these are called okazaki fragments and don't worry about that name particularly but the point here is you have one strand which is called the leading strand and it's done continuously Right on down. The other strand is the, called the lagging strand, and it has to be done in pieces going in the opposite direction. Now, here's a kind of a, a, a way to think about this. Now, we don't have a lot of. But I've lived in, I to go to Richmond, go one-way streets, and get you every time you go up there. Uh, and I've lived in cities that have a lot of one-way streets. And now they're very actually quite functional because traffic moves much more smoothly when it's all going the same direction. So these are cross streets. Okay, let's assume you are a package delivery person. And somebody sets up your route for you, it tells you you, know, you need to go to this place first, or the next place second. This place, there. And the reason for that is not just delivery, but generally you're picking up, and they need to know when you're going to be there so that they can have stuff ready for you to pick up. All right, so it turns out that they set up your itinerary, the guy who does this, like this. One, two, three. Okay, this is a bit of a problem first part is easy, just go down the street, stop, do whatever you need to do, go to this one, go to this one, then you can come over this cross street, but now you're expected to be here, so you have to come down and you do this one. Okay, I to put another cross street down here, you go on down this cross street, up here, back across, and now you can go to this one. And you go down across, and now you can do this one. The Enzyme is doing something similar. Yeah, of course. The answer to this is don't design your pickups that way. Yeah, but uh, that's sometimes not under your control. But that gives you an idea of of what's going on with with this enzyme. It's having an issue, uh, and therefore it needs to follow a rather unique and what looks like confusing uh, path to do that. Now, let's see if that. As they do, <coughs> they don't. Well, we don't have shockwave as usual. This one. Okay, so this is a uh, animation. If it'll run. All right, now this is from uh, the DNA Learning Center. This is uh, from Cold Spring Harbor Lab, which is up uh, in Massachusetts, on the coast of Massachusetts, uh, one of the premier research facilities in the country, right, and they've worked a little bit. And uh, I'm going to skip to another one here before I do that one. We're going to look at the simpler version first. So we're going to look at replication, basically.
2: You are looking at an assembly line of amazing miniature biochemical machines. Using computer animation based on molecular research, we are now able to see how DNA is actually copied in living cells. You are looking at an assembly line of amazing miniature biochemical machines that are pulling apart the DNA double. And cranking
0: out a copy. Okay. which one of these do you think is the continuous strand and or leading strand and which is the lagging strand? Just from watching what's going on there. What would be your guess? The bottom the yeah, bottom one is the leading, it's going continuous, and this is going through loops and everything in order to to make it work. Each strand.
2: DNA to be copied enters the production line from bottom left. The whirling blue molecular machine is called helicase. It spins the DNA as fast as a jet engine as it unwinds the double helix into two strands. One strand is copied continuously and can be seen spooling off to the right. Things are not so simple for the other strand because it must be copied backwards.
0: This green, this here is the enzyme complex that's in the copy. This is your, your plumberase, your DNA plumberase enzyme. Of course, you can see there are other copies on the other strand.
2: It is drawn out repeatedly in loops and copied one section at a time. The end result is two new DNA molecules. During DNA replication, both strands of the double helix act as templates for the formation of new DNA molecules. Copying occurs in a localized region called the replication form, which is a Y-shaped structure where new DNA strands are synthesized by a multi-enzyme complex. Here, the DNA to be copied enters the complex from the left. One new strand is leaving at the top of frame and the other new strand is leaving at the bottom. The first step in DNA replication is the separation of the two strands by an enzyme called helicase. This spins the incoming DNA to unravel it at 10,000 RPM in the case of bacterial systems. The separated strands are called three prime and five prime. Distinguished by the direction in which their component nucleotides join up. The 3' DNA strand, also known as the leading strand, is diverted to a DNA polymerase and is used as a continuous template for the synthesis of the first daughter DNA helix. The other half of the DNA double helix, known as the lagging strand, has the opposite 3' to 5' orientation. And consequently, requires a more complicated copying mechanism. Instead of copying this
0: direction, it's copied in this direction, okay, the reverse. So it loops it out. It copies a section this way, and it comes back, and it copies another section
2: that way, and then it puts them together. As it emerges from the helicase, the lagging strand is organized into sections called Okazaki fragments. These are then presented to a second DNA polymerase enzyme in the preferred 5' to 3' the orientation. These sections are then effectively synthesized backwards. When the copying is okay, so it's copied from here in this direction. This one's
0: copying in that direction. You can't see it moving because the, <coughs> the DNA is just going through. This one has to go in the opposite direction back over here, and be, this will loop out further, it will come back over here and it'll do another section and it keeps looping out and it's back and does another section, it's back and does another section. Pretty complicated. And all organisms that we've ever run into, whether they be eukaryotic or prokaryotic, use this basic system, so it's pretty fundamental to all life as far as we can. Certainly not the most efficient one. It be more efficient just to have two enzymes, one which you go each way
2: out. Complete, the finished section is released and the next loop is drawn back for replication. Intricate as this mechanism appears, numerous components have been deliberately left out to avoid complete confusion. The exposed strands of single DNA are covered by protective binding proteins, and in some systems, multiple Okazaki fragments may be present. Okay, Thank you, Bill.
0: Now, I don't expect you to, to duplicate that, but I want you to know about is that it is as a semi-conservative and, and what that means. Okay, But I want to give you a feel for the complexity of what's going on in the cells. It's extremely complex, and as I mentioned, they left out parts of that so that to make it, you know, so it actually is even more complex than, than what goes like. Now, this is going on every new cell, on every chromosome in every new cell, that's millions per minute, probably billions per minute, in us, and other organisms that would obviously differ some depending on their size. Okay, so uh, a little bit of difference in eukaryotes, but basically it's, it's a similar process. Yeah. So this is what we're talking about here is the genome, the genotype that you would have talked about back in in 101. The genotype is the set of genes that you have. The phenotype are the physical features that show up because of those genes. And uh, I think to end today, I'm going to do one other little short video here, and then we'll pick up with this next class. So you've probably already seen this in another class.
1: We will now take a tour of about 650,000 nucleotides from the tip of the short arm of human chromosome 11. This is equal to about half of 1% of the entire chromosome and about 1,500 of the human genome. In a distance, you can discern 28 genes denoted by red and yellow blocks. The red exons carry the DNA code for protein while the yellow introns are non-coding. Also prominent are more than 500 transposons, or jumping genes, denoted by blue and purple blocks. If we zoom in, we can take a closer look at the structure of this chromosome region. We first encounter a cluster of five small genes, averaging about 1,500 nucleotides in length. These encode components of hemoglobin, the oxygen carrying molecule of the blood. Beta globin is a common component of adult blood, and a mutation to a single nucleotide in this gene that is responsible for sickle cell anemia. Delta globin, a minor component of adult blood, is followed by a non functional copy of beta globin, termed a pseudogene. Gamma and epsilon globins are expressed in the embryo and fetus next we encounter two small genes that encode
0: encompass- okay, the other hemoglobin in the fetus is because the fetus has to be able to steal oxygen from your hemoglobin okay so that means it has to have a greater affinity for the oxygen than your hemoglobin does and that's and that's what those do they allow the, the fetus to pull the oxygen off of your hemoglobin and into the
1: Ode olfactory receptors, common features of chromosome 11. These are followed by an intergenic region of 183,000 nucleotides, lacking any known genes. Scattered throughout this region are numerous simple repeats composed of multiple copies of a repeated sequence of 2 to 50 nucleotides. Two green blocks identify repeats longer than 100 nucleotides variations in the number of repeats between people creating a dna difference or polymorphism which
0: can- and that's the basis for dna markers for forensic purposes okay they're not looking at actual your actual genes that they're, they're looking at are these repeat sections which the number of repeats vary from person to person and there's a number of sections that they look at they amplify them with pcr and then they're They cut them with restriction enzymes and then they look at the pattern that they get and the pattern will... The the chances of two random individuals being the same are in the billions to one. Not entirely impossible because when you get into probability, nothing is impossible. Somebody's going to win the lottery, right, okay, even though the odds are not high. But somebody's going to win, okay, but it's really, really uh, rare. Of course, identical
1: twins would normally be similar. These are genetic models. ...be used in forensic biology, paternity testing, or disease diagnosis. Blue and purple boxes identify the more than 100 transposons that litter the intergenic region. These molecular parasites make up about half of the human genome by one. Okay,
0: transposons are bits of DNA that contain genes that allow them to periodically remove themselves from the DNA, go somewhere else in the chromosome, and insert themselves. We have no idea why they're there. We have no idea where they came from. All we know is we got a bunch of them. Most of them are no longer functional, but they have been in the past. We don't really know know what they are, other than that's what they do. And they were initially discovered by uh, Barbara McClinock, uh, she was studying corn. You know, Indian corn has all different colors, you know, kernels. It turns out that the different colors are caused by these, these little bits of DNA that are moving around and inactivating certain genes that change, therefore, change the color of the kernel.
1: Wait. And the majority move about using an enzyme that was later borrowed by viruses, such as HIV. Each of the millions of transposons in the human genome arose from an individual jump at some point in evolution. The majority of transposons have not jumped for millions of years and thus are molecular fossils. They're still littering your DNA. The majority of transposons are located within gene clusters and even within genes, a fact that perplexes scientists. The intergenic region is followed by two adjacent ubiquilin genes, which are involved in key cell processes from replication to programmed cell death. Ubiquilin 3 is expressed specifically in the testes, where it is believed to help regulate sperm development. These are followed by a cluster of gene locations thought to encode olfactory receptors, which receive stimuli in the nose to allow us to detect smells. At 31,110 nucleotides long, the first gene in this cluster, at location 120009 is the longest we will encounter on our journey. Its 11 coding exons are indicated in red, but most of its bulk comes from its yellow introns and 29 blue and purple transposons. However, The majority of olfactory receptors are short. The next four gene locations are more typical of olfactory receptors and having only one or two coding exons. About 60% of our smell receptors are non-functional. Presumably, humans have less need for smell in locating food and interacting socially. The mutations that inactivate many receptors vary among people meaning that there is a DNA basis for the observation that some people can smell better than others. It also suggests that the loss of smelling acuity has occurred very recently in human evolution and is still ongoing. Next follows a cluster of four genes in the tripartite motif, or trim family. Trim proteins contain three motifs, or structures, through which they bind to DNA to regulate gene activity. Averaging about 21,000 nucleotides and having about eight coding exons, the TRIM genes come very close to the average size of human genes. Different proteins can be produced by a single TRIM gene by making different combinations of coding exons. TRIM 34 and 22 help mediate the antiviral activity of interferon offer insight into the fight against HIV. Our tour ends with another cluster of nine olfactory receptor genes. Chromosome 11 contains about 40% of the estimated 1,000 genes for olfactory receptors in the human genome. There is such a concentration of receptor genes at the tip of chromosome 11 that this whole region could be called an olfactory supercluster, in which the beta globin and trim clusters are embedded. We will you now a take a tour of about 650,000
0: new... Okay. Um, it gives you a little bit of an idea of what the chromosomes look like in eukaryotes. We'll talk about introns and exons next time, when we talk about the protein synthesis part, uh, and uh, hopefully those will make a lot more, more sense at that time. So, we'll uh, see you uh, Wednesday, and... Uh, I'll get those exams down there